Hello and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Today we're chatting to stand-up comedian Rosie Wilby about her book, Is Monogamy Dead? We discuss the concept of monogamy, using intricate details of your life in narrative non-fiction, and how stand-up skills help when writing a book. Rosie's appearing at our December the 14th event, along with Laura Kay, Clifford Thompson, Kate Murray-Brown and Julian Furman. Um, snap up your tickets by visiting the-riffraff.com. Nobody warned me. A bright young lady like you, the world's your oyster. You could be a doctor. Go to Cambridge like your mother. You'll be absolutely fine, said Mr Wallington, our head of year. A sentiment echoed by pretty much every responsible adult I knew. I was a white middle-class British girl with two academic parents, an only child with no siblings vying for attention. Life would be cool. I got complacent and a little smug, occasionally flunking an exam on purpose because I knew I could get an A next time. And yet, as adulthood dawned, a darkness crept up through the cracks of the paving stones of the life they had all mapped out for me. The problem wasn't being gay. Everyone was fine about that. Mum had even once tried to tell me something about her and her friend Joan on holiday. Fresh from an aerobic session in front of her Mad Lizzie video, she emerged from the house, sporting a green leotard and pink leg warmers to say, I wouldn't mind if I had a daughter who was a lesbian. Then came the masked revelation about her close female friendships. Having totally disrupted my sun-kissed adolescent reverie about a girl from the year below in school, she rushed back indoors to find a book of lesbian poetry so that she could recite it later over the tea table to the silent horror of Dad and me. No, being gay wasn't the problem. The monster yapping and snarling at the heels of my happiness was called monogamy. Nobody warned me about monogamy. Nobody told me that by the time I was 40, I would have had four serious relationships. Great. Oh, and four gut-wrenching serious breakups. <laughs> Not so great. Each would smash me into a million pieces, the hammer wielded by a completely unexpected, exquisitely awful dance of mutual sacrifice, a compromise of my freedom's desires and ultimately my identity and soul. Each time, either I or my beloved would cave in and screw up the dance and betray all the lifelong promises we'd made. Each time I'd put myself back together again, start all over again, trust all over again, hope all over again. I was exhausted, but nobody gave me a round of applause for this resilience. No wonder I sought out a career where I would habitually get two rounds of applause every night. Maybe more if I'd done super well. Maybe I could make jokes about monogamy, about the heartbreak. I could pretend everything was fine, just like all those responsible adults had said. <laughs> yes, of course I'm fine. <laughs> Here I am being super confident, sharp, witty and sexy in front of a hundred strangers. I'm really thinking. None of those people know me. I will go home alone on the last train with all the drunks and freaks the Warner comedian friend refers to as the vomit comet. Most normal people file away any thoughts of doing stand-up. You're so brave. I couldn't do it, they gasp. Well, it's not like being a firefighter, I say. Yet it takes a whopping personal tragedy to propel you to undertake this extreme form of very public therapy. Many of the UK's most famous comics started after a divorce, the loss of a parent or a similar seismic event. If my life was now the sinking Titanic, comedy was my lifeboat and monogamy was my iceberg. I was using one to try and save myself from the damage, the carnage inflicted by the other. I was going to fight the monster that threatened me by understanding and taming it and having a jolly good laugh at it. Hello, Rosie Wilby. Very uh, nice to have you here. 
Hello. <laughs> it's me and Amy sitting here. To, um, so thank you so much for joining us, first of all, on the Riff Raff podcast. Um, for anyone who's not yet read Is Monogamy Dead? <gasps> How dare they? <laughs> I know. First of all, go out and read it. Yeah. Second of all, um, for anyone who's who's on tenterhooks to find out what it's about, could you give us a bit of a synopsis? Um, well, it details my quest to really answer the question is monogamy dead which um, proved to be much more complex than I ever realised when I posed it as the title as my 2013 Edinburgh Fringe comedy show Um, and I realised through the challenge of trying to write a comedy show that actually monogamy and fidelity um, were actually pretty tough to be funny about in the confines of an hour of performance and I realised there was so much more depth there in terms of all the different type of emotional or sexual connections that we have from friendship to casual sex or, you know, there's just this myriad um, of all our different kind of relationship forms. And I started talking to people who were having open relationships and different types of relationships and realised there was so much there that I'd better write a book, really. And it's very much embedded in my own personal story of performing and and answering a lot of questions for myself about my own life and my own relationships um and and yes you'll have to read the book to find out if there are any answers <laughs> <laughs> well hold those thoughts because we're going to be asking you a little bit more about that in a, in a bit how did you find the process of so you said obviously mentioned that you would the research process like happened because you were researching your show when did mm. you, when did you kind of go oh my god this is enough material for a book and how did you find the process of writing a book compared to writing a stand-up show um, well, I mean, a, a typical Edinburgh show is probably about 7,000 words. So I think like a book is about 10 Edinburgh shows. Yeah. So that's kind of about 10 years of a comedian's life. So so that that sort of just shows you the kind of scale. Because comedians usually think writing an Edinburgh show, that's oh, it's really, really hard. And, and actually, once you've written a book, you think, yeah. wow, <laughs> that's like proper hard. Um, <laughs> I can do anything now. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm invincible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, the process was was um, was definitely different, and I, th- I think the the key was when um, um, in two thousand and fourteen. So the following year after I had done the show in Edinburgh, I did a Radio Four forethought piece, and the producer of that, Charles Edwards, had read some of my articles and was quite interested in me recording a piece with him, um, but really wanted to push me to sort of dig a little deeper and think about some of my ideas when I was writing the script for that and four thoughts are about just under 15 minutes and um, kind of a monologue or something yeah yeah I presented it at the ICA um, in uh, summer 2014 and you record it in front of a little audience and it's really nice um, and it's it's still online that that one was titled a new currency of commitment um, because I was sort of playing with in that particularly, I was playing with the idea of the value that we place on romantic relationships over and above friendship when actually for so many people, the idea of saying just friends is is ridiculous because for so many women in particular, I think, um, friendships are really, really important. And sometimes the people who are, are there long term when, when sort of lovers come and go, I mean, it's not always like that, but for, for so many people, that is the reality, that the real permanent people are the best mates. Yeah. Um, and, well, I, I talk a lot about language in relationships and um, one of my friends using the term love affair friendship. So. I, I love that phrase. Mm-hmm. I, heard it. I think it's such a great one. Cool. It sums up. I think you're so right about women as well. I think 
friendships underpin your life and they're so they're almost like family aren't they yeah then you share like every i think about some of my like best friendships and you share like absolutely everything things that you wouldn't share with another part like a romantic partner you share like such detail and like and it's and you and you're so loyal to each other and so committed to each other and so kind of like in their corner and like more so like when, do you when think? Really, yeah, I yeah. think so. Like when I think about my kind of like lady friendships that I'm like <laughs> lady with, friendships. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, know, like, I, I don't. Uh, the, the strength I feel towards those relationships is like huge, and it's nice to think of that. Like what you shouldn't have to think about it as being a romantic relationship being the most important when you've got these other relationships in your life that are just as key and just as satisfying and just as like mm, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's exciting to kind of well not excited. Well, I don't know whether exciting is the right word, but like so interesting to read it and think. Why am I thinking about like you know? Like it's why is it, why is a relationship in the traditional sense all we aspire to? Like mm. the sort of the, the friendships just as important and mm. just as like life changing and it's yeah. yeah it's a nice and actually, idea. some some of the people I know who have the most rewarding friendships are actually single. Um, <laughs> you know, and I, I think guilty. Yeah, <laughs> I on the other hand, I'm a terrible friend. <laughs> <laughs> and it can be difficult to maintain friendships when you're in a relationship. So. It's, yeah, it's an interesting dilemma, mm. all of that, and the value we feel we should place on the partner above mm. other mm. people. You must have learned so much from the process of researching this. Like, it must have just opened up this whole different mindset. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, it um, I mean, yes, obviously, just, just talking to so many different people. And I don't know, I think I've got that kind of mindset where I want to sort of grapple with something and understand something um, and really get to the bottom of it. I mean, it's very hard to find answers in terms of how the brain works when we're in love and in relationships because it's it, <laughs> it's so kind of contrary in, in so many ways and not almost designed to, uh, <laughs> to make us happy in some senses. Um, so, so yes, it's been it's been a really really fascinating journey to try and get to the bottom of how how we work in, around things like jealousy and boundaries and desire. Um, so interesting. Mm. And as a stand up, you're so used to having your audience right in front of you to get that immediate feedback. I'm assuming they laugh. <laughs> um, <laughs> usually, usually. <laughs> there's um, always the odd gig where you think, oh no. But <laughs> that's as you're audience. doing it, you know, you can kind of sense the room and change bits and yes. you know what's not going to work. And, you know, and it's like I said, it's so immediate. With the book, it's not quite the same. It's a long, long, long process. And I, then, yeah, you know, yeah. some people are great at feedback, but how have you found that? I think that's really difficult because I think for a comedian, that's the joy of it. You can um, road test some new material, like you might write it one day and you could go down to an open, your new material night or an open mic night and test it out in front of an audience that evening and get instant feedback. I mean, you probably wouldn't um, just take one audience's kind of word for it as to what was funny or not. You maybe try something out three times, but... um, yeah, with a book, you are kind of sitting there on your own wondering if is this interesting, funny, insightful, um, and you don't really get that feedback until sort of <laughs> you know long, 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 long time later when it's when it's been published. It's not even when it's finished. I mean, obviously, when you hand in your first draft, you get feedback from an editor or, and some someone. But I think 
Yes, so it's really when you get more of the feedback from from readers. I mean, I got a wonderful Facebook message just the other day from someone who bought the book at Diva Literary Festival, which I was just at um, the other weekend, and she said that I'd I'd lit her brain up in a in a way that it hadn't been lit up for a long time, and that she'd always felt she thought about relationships a bit differently to everyone else, and she felt less isolated for having read it, and that was kind of exactly what I wanted to achieve because I felt a bit like that too I felt like oh everyone seems to think about relationships in a certain way and I I don't know if I fit into that comfortably it's not even about um I always used to think it was a kind of gay straight thing um and maybe I felt different because I was gay but actually I realized I felt differently than most of my gay friends and it wasn't that at all um so it, yeah it's really it's interesting an, it's an interesting way like like I can I can sort of get what she's talking about with like lighting up the brain like I was just saying to you like it does just it's, it makes things it makes you think about things that potentially you wouldn't have considered before because you're told through through your whole life you're told that this romantic love is what you're kind of and it's one partner and all this kind of stuff you know we're fed that from the moment we're born so yeah and so of course we're going to put loads of emphasis on having these monogamous relationships because that's what we're told is the kind of thing and it's it's exciting that there's that people are kind of like opening their minds to like different ways of looking at things, well, that, different ways of operating. That's what I was going to ask. Because have you have you sort of discovered? Because having sort of you know I've written about similar you know relationships and stuff in the past, ah. um, and there does seem to be a huge scene of people who are experimenting with open relationships and polyamory and stuff. Did you find that is there a whole world, a whole scene going on that maybe isn't getting kind of reported or talked about definitely i felt i think there's a bit of a sea change at the moment um because we've recently had magazines like stylist kind of tackling polyamory but actually from quite an intelligent point of view and sort of presenting it as maybe a feminist way of having relationships because we're sort of maybe abandoning some of the patriarchal ideas of ownership of a woman yeah. and, and all of these yeah. kind of yeah you know what i mean um but um yeah i think that's changed only in recent years, because I think media coverage of polyamory before that was very much, people conflated it with sort of swinging and mm. people going, you know, sort of partner Deviance, swapping at, yeah. at, at parties and sort of it was a bit kinky and a bit, it was all about sex and not really about the more cerebral um, way that many polyamorous people have looked at, at defining love. And I mean, particularly, I talk as well about relationship anarchy and people who are trying to abandon sort of hierarchical structures in relationships which ties in a bit with my idea of a new currency of commitment and sort of friendship not being sort of devalued but I do think abandoning all hierarchy is um, I I think I would find that challenging because I think at, at, at some level it's, it's just easier if you kind of actually live with somebody and sort of share your home and resources and split the bills with somebody um you know i think doing that is is kind of probably quite uh it's probably easier to have that primary person that you sort of do those very very practical things with whether or not they're your main sexual partner or or whatever do you think it's easier to just conform even if you kind of you know you do think oh well actually you know i think that that would actually it sounds really appealing and you know i don't know about it do yeah they? Like, don't know it's an option exactly really, or, don't, or haven't got their minds open to the fact it's an option maybe. well absolutely mm. so there's a lack of you know kind of knowledge about it but you know did you come across anyone who 
you know, on the flip side, just kind of was like, it's just easier to be in a, you know, it's just yeah. so, from society's point of view or whatever. Well, I or, think it is. Know. I mean, but then again, does that stop you doing something if it suits you? Because, I, I mean, you could argue that it's easier to be heterosexual than it is to be yeah. bi or gay or trans or, uh, uh, you know, anything else that, that sort of deviates from the norm about gender or sexuality. But if you feel that it's right for you to to deviate from those norms then then that's what you must do um to to sort of be authentic in in your own relationships Mm. so i do i do hear you that it it is kind of it's always easier to try and fit in isn't it yeah (laughs) um but i think in some ways maybe as, as we get older i mean a lot of women you know my age in our 40s i think we've kind of felt like oh you know what i just want to do what i i want to do if i'm not hurting anyone else you know so i think Particularly, you know, a lot of my friends, we'd all been serially monogamous. And, you know, if, if you sort of go by the traditional viewpoint on relationships, of course, having broken up from a relationship is supposedly a failure. Um, whereas, you know, if, if we look at relationships differently, um, and I particularly look at sort of lesbians in previous generations who didn't necessarily view breaking up as a failure because actually they would often stay friends with their exes and kind of build communities of exes that they really got on really well with. So I sort of, there's one argument I make about that possibly being a sort of advantageous um, thing to do if, if you had lots of different exes that you share history with and you've got a kind of almost family-like bond. Well, it seems such a waste, doesn't it? That you spend so much time with someone and you put so much effort and energy and you share so much to then just go, we don't really fancy each other anymore. I mean, obviously, you know, obviously it's okay to break up with someone, but it just seems oh, yeah, a waste. It is. So, and obviously, you know, some sometimes it's, it's you have it's to better. just leave it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Water, yeah. Talk about it again. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. Um, yeah. yeah, sometimes you just think, oh, what a waste. And you don't stop loving them as a person and yeah. kind of enjoying their company. But nope, never going to see them again. Yeah, yeah, so. that's, that was all just, that had happened. And now, you know, that's over. Oh, maybe. <laughs> um, um, anyway, back to uh, the book. So obviously, you're, it's funny non-fiction. It's also like informative non-fiction. Opening the mind, bloody love it. Um, so <laughs> obviously, sort of funny non-fiction is a notoriously difficult kind of market to crack. Uh-huh. And um, so, what are your um, what are your kind of aspirations for the book? And um, what would you say to writers who are keen to write this genre? Um. Well, I mean, obviously, I've been inspired by. I mean, I have a lovely quote on the back cover from Sarah Pascoe. Oh, how, good, um, how good is Animal? I mean, well, how good is Sarah Animal? Pascoe. Exactly, and and how good is her stand up and mm-hmm. just the way she conducts herself in the media and on TV and her sort of comments about feminism and where we're at in terms of just just society in in general. You know, she's really intelligent and and great, and um, so. So yeah, obviously it's it's good to look to other female comedians who've got that sort of extra bit of profile and, and be inspired by them. Um, you know, but I'd really, you know, like like to see the book kind of getting out there and, and sort of opening people's minds in the way that you're saying it yeah. sort of has done. And, and the woman who emailed me and said it's lit up her lit up her mind. Um, you know, I'm I'm really proud of it. I for me, I was really. Um, keen to give it some kind of a sense of a story and read a bit like a novel in terms of there being a reason to keep reading when you would come to the end of a chapter not like a sort of dry non-fiction book where you go well I've read that chapter about sex so 
maybe I'll just dip into this other chapter about friendship, you know, yeah. and you just would skip huge chunks of the book. Whereas I've tried to make it where you would kind of miss out by doing that because actually there's a real story to follow. Yeah. Um, but, uh, th- you know, th- a through line about my different relationships and sort of flashbacks in time as well, um, which... Uh, how did you? I think we've got a question about that. Like you know, you you do talk very frankly about your relationships and very and like and that's and very openly about kind of your ex or soon to be ex, <laughs> Name, sure. names have been names have been changed. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's what I was going to say. Like you know, when you when you're writing something of this kind of like not sensitive nature, but like you know, you're writing about the sort of personal lives of yourself of yourself and people that you know. How did you tackle that? Did you take that on? Um, I think it's. Um, you know, it, it's as a comedian, you always have to think about your responsibilities to people. Um, and I, I um, sort of have talked about my parents, particularly my, my dad and um, his sort of eccentricities and things on stage. And I think if it's always done respectfully, um, and most of my comedy is quite warm, and rather than if if I'm sort of taking anyone down, it's usually that I'm sort of laughing at myself in that kind of quite British way that we do. Mm. Um, so so I think so long as you reflect those people with a sort of three-dimensionality um, rather than them just being like this, ooh, here's, here's this baddie ex that dumped me, or, you know. Yeah. You know, if those people seem real and their actions seem real and they're rooted in your authentic account of what happened, then I think, I think that's okay. But obviously I have done things like change a lot of names because... It's not like a sort of name and shame and go, oh, yeah. yeah, <laughs> that friend was having an affair. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yes. Um, so, so yes, it, you know, it, I think I think we can navigate these things. And um, I have also, it, it's kind of occurred to me how we all have different uh, memories of, of the past, though. It's, it's interesting how, you know, to some extent, all our memories are become semi-fictionalized um you know and and it's been interesting sort of writing memoir um sections of the book because at first I kind of didn't really want to write dialogue and I didn't really have any at first and then I sort of went back and started putting loads in because other writers looking at it and going oh you know it's really dense there's no dialogue and I'm thinking well I can't remember what we actually said but then of course that's that's one of the things that you can do is is sort of make it up a tiny bit so long as you remember the energy of what was happening in some key words and phrases and you've the got the sense test. of it yes yeah. but I think I struggled a bit with that at first and thought oh, you know it has to be absolutely what happened but the thing is it's about a sense of what happened exactly. and, and your sort of feeling of, of, of what was going on mm-hmm. and that does evolve and change and memory is selective isn't it definitely you know, like, yeah, you, remember, you don't remember like, I don't remember the things that I've done wrong well, well, I do. There's a lot of them, but like you know, you don't choose to recall those things. You choose to recall your kind of perspective of stuff, don't you? Yeah, of course. Like, so it's, but for the thing that really mattered to you out of that conversation, it might not have been the most exciting part, the most exciting dramatic sentence. But you know, it was maybe one word or the way something was said that you you take that away. Yeah, you know? and it was dramatic to you because it, it resonated exactly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. But, um, and you've talked about writing as being quite a cathartic process, especially in light of having a breakup as well, which I think, you know, is a really difficult thing to process. <laughs> a lot of writers go through really difficult things and I think are kind of driven to want to write about it for that very reason. But 
occasionally they can you know there's always a risk that you end up sort of just pouring your emotions down onto the page writing you know just basically writing a diary yeah exactly (laughs) and so the reader's reading it going like okay well maybe a therapist like would be i don't know these people how do you what advice would you kind of give for anyone who wants to write about something that's happened to them something they've been through but in a way that's still like it's still a proper well-crafted book that is going to be engaging and interesting for the reader um, probably give it a bit of time rather than, <laughs> I mean, you might want to pour the stuff out immediately when it's all going on. But that, I mean, I have kind of notebooks full of really crazy, angry nonsense. Um, and, and from some of that mania, you know, the book gradually evolved. But I mean, there are just pages and pages of like some, <laughs> some stuff that I've written in notebooks. I think I don't even really understand that anymore. <laughs> it's just insane. Um, <laughs> it's obviously good comedy for that. Isn't and it? I like, think we'll yeah. have to have you back on the podcast to read, read some of those notebooks. <laughs> I mean, that's a great idea. Get authors to read from their first drafts. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that wasn't even first draft. It was just pre draft. Just getting your it's just kind yeah. of, down. It's just kind of stream of consciousness type stuff, isn't it? I suppose, uh, like, when you're writing that kind of stuff, like, I feel like with, because we both wrote mem- sort of memoirs, and I found that when, when I was writing the first kind of drafts of it, they were ve- they kind of had a specific motive, which then, with some time and space, I realised that that was not the point. And so you kind of realise <laughs> what the point is, having, like, lived it and like learned from it and written it down and kind of like you know it does teach you a lot of stuff about yourself doesn't it like this sort of process of like recalling everything so I think time is a good a good one and so many authors as well get to the end of their first draft and then go back and read the beginning and think what the hell was I doing (laughs) did you how did you find the, the going through the drafts process how many drafts did you do um well to be honest it was written really quickly um uh well, in a you know in a in a few months, um, and to be honest, uh, some some of the book is I mean after those all those crazy notes, some of the book is probably still first or second draft. To be honest, quite quite a lot, because um, I worked really quite quickly. But the thing that really changed things and um, sort of made me kind of throw away or not throw away, but actually completely reshaped the beginning was when I went away um, 2016, July 2016, to um, a writer's retreat in um, LA at University of Southern California that I got placed on. Amazing. Uh, which was really amazing. And so I was the only British writer there. And it was um, like an LGBT writer's retreat. And um, they help you sort of crowdfund some money to get over there and do it. And our non-fiction tutor was Sarah Shulman. Um, and on the first morning, she said this amazing thing. She said, nonfiction is the story of an idea. And so we're sort of getting across this idea that nonfiction is very much like writing fiction, really. And so that's where I really found a sense of the structure of kind of embedding my discoveries and my questions and thoughts and ideas about monogamy within that journey of writing the show and, and being in the relationship that I was questioning and... and um, and so really making it my my story, but with these ideas and um, kind of scientific interludes and conversations with my scientific, scientific advisor um, and, and, and all of that stuff kind of filtering through a story. Um, so, yeah, she she really kind of kind of brought into focus my my thinking about how to write it. And I had taken along what I thought was going to be the beginning that sort of kind of threw a lot of my ideas up right at the beginning some of the kind of provocative thoughts I was having 
um, about questioning relationships, but there was just too much in there, sort of jumping all around. And I remember one lunchtime, um, and this just makes me sound so lucky. I mean, there's been lots of parts of this process that have been really, really hard. And um, but but that that whole week was wonderful. And um, one lunchtime after we'd done our morning class, um, I went for a swim in the it's the most wonderful swimming pool I've ever set foot in or set body in in. (laughs) yes um and uh yeah the usc swimming pool and of course it's like no one was really swimming at lunchtime because it's it's ridiculously hot in july in los angeles um but it was kind of like being in the bath typical brit yeah i know i I did have my sun cream on but i but that was a good time to go because um it was nice and quiet and um and i don't swim like super super fast so i was just doing my kind of gentle kind of breaststroke and I was kind of swimming up and down and I, I that was when in my head I wrote the the beginning the very beginning prologue of the book and sort of so I presented that to class the next day read it out and they were like oh yeah that's much better you know we now we really feel a sense of engagement about why you're writing this book yeah um which was what, what I was trying to do and yeah so. you're the second riffraff author we've had who was doing some sort of physical activity and then came up with the idea for their book. We interviewed ah. Felicia Yap, who wrote yesterday, and she was Hi, tangoing, she was tangoing doing yeah. a tango <laughs> when she came up with her wow. idea. So obviously, there's something in that. Yeah, I think. Like, she said Amazing. something, but she said something really like, profound about like what it was. There's it was no kind of way like we're going to kind of like this it. sort of like science of movement and like some kind of like I don't know. Blah, blah, blah. I think when you think about other things, isn't I think. It? Well, I think movement is definitely very interesting because scientifically, if you're moving around, the blood is pumping around the body pumping around the brain you are going to be probably thinking better um but yeah i used to um write a lot of songs back when i was doing music write a lot of songs when i was traveling in some way and on on the move um and i've often rehearsed my comedy sets when i'm exercising jogging that kind of thing so (laughs) performing good for the good for the heart that just like talking and performing while running well (laughs) performing in my head like silently okay i was gonna say that's really good for you but, but well, I would definitely, I would think of usually think of more ad libs and possible interjections and bits that I would add whilst I was running and doing an activity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? Really, it's like, damn it, I'm so good at sitting down. <laughs> it, I suppose, but it is with with the book, like it is, it is the bits about you know, and the same with with Sarah Pascoe's book as well. You know, like there's, it's so interesting to read the stats that you put in there about kind of relationships and about the, the things that land in terms of like the science behind it. But then having the element of your journey and the, and why you're looking at the things that you're looking at, it, it, it makes things land. It makes things so much more much more memorable. It makes you associate situations that you've been in, and that's what I love. Yeah. That. I love that reading that kind of genre. Like something that educates you, entertains you, makes you laugh. Like it's not too heavy, but it's could be quite a heavy topic if it was just to be science. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's really really enjoyable. I'm loving it. Brilliant. Well, I hope I hope the genre is um something that that people enjoy reading and it takes off more it's interesting you say it's a hard genre it does seem weird um in terms of bookshops categorizing it because i'm in like um in i think foils i'm on i'm in like humor i think blackwell's in in oxford when i did an event there they put me in sociology and yeah. Uh, uh yeah i think waterstones got me in relationships which mm. kind of really does make sense but it, it's in different places yeah. i found i found my book in self-help once oh yes i which, think which I'm, I'm going to take as a as a compliment i think i think that's <laughs> I, a good thing i think self-help books sell quite well don't they're they huge yeah, yeah. Mind, mind, body, love mind body and spirits um yeah. one of 2018 big big area oh, wow. mm. 
So we have to ask, obviously you've written a book about dating and relationships and the pursuit of, you know, trying to find somebody. What advice would you give for anyone who's out there at the moment traversing the terrifying planes of dating? <laughs> so me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Give me some advice. And also it? Amy. <laughs> like you're a separate category. <laughs> no, that's, oh, that's Amy one. is a Amy's a separate category. Oh, right. really? Yeah, okay. Me. Yeah, sorry. I'm really not. Um, well, I think um, uh, not to necessarily pin too much on on the outcome. You know, I think if we feel we're searching, it's, it's the old adage, isn't it? If you're searching for something, then you're less likely to find it. Um, I mean, yeah, I've often started good new relationships when I've sort of not been looking. But then, I don't know, I think society does seem to have changed. Like I always used to, I mean, talk a lot in the book about sort of meeting in real life and how I always preferred that and, and thought things would just happen organically. Whereas it does seem now there's such an industry and machinery behind dating that maybe you do have to put quite a lot of work into it. Now, I did... Um, when I met my, my new partner, who I've now been with, we're just coming up to our one-year anniversary, actually. Aww. Yay! <laughs> um, and we're just about to move in together. Um, and so I talk about her just right at the end of the book. And, um, yeah, I did sort of go on a few dates and, and kind of sort of meet, deliberately meet a few new interesting people and kind of get out there a bit, which I'd always been a bit like, oh, you know, sort of felt really exhausted by the by the idea of that, really, and thought, oh, you know, just sure someone amazing will just come and buy me a drink after a gig and <laughs> but I don't know if you can I don't know I'm really torn like I I want to kind of think that you could still wait for that magic moment and it will happen because fate surely will make it happen um but then it does seem like there, there's such a lot of work in it now and I I do think actually giving myself the feeling the sense of options including being single being a valid option now yeah. um did did sort of feel more empowering that's such a good point. I think people go out and try and date with the objective of finding someone. Yeah. Whereas if, yeah, if you consider that maybe I'll have a short-term thing, maybe I'll you know meet someone and be with them forever, maybe I won't meet someone, maybe I'll meet someone and it won't be right now, but it's right later. And I'm like, just I'm like not the, putting all that pressure on yourself. Yeah, I like the point you make about when you're single, you being the most like authentic version of oh, yourself. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. I screenshotted that and was like, remember that, Amy. It's such, <laughs> it's, it's such a valid point because I think the yeah. moment you are in a relationship with someone else and you're sharing yourself and your life, you are diluting yourself down a bit. You are having to compromise, you know. On, yeah. You, well, well this is the interesting yeah. thing. That's why everyone should read the book. Yes, <laughs> yes absolutely. So these are questions. These are the questions, aren't they? But yes, I think uh, the word I use is that maybe we're almost electrified because yeah, yeah. there was that imagery of the kind of being in the sea and or on an island and which is which. And yeah, interesting. And I, <laughs> there's also a bit out in there that I that was that you you mentioned kind of um, the difficulties about loving a creative. Uh-huh. Uh, and so having conducted extensive research for that for the book what tips do you have for the partners of the creatives out there what what, what can the creatives tell their partners they need to just deal with <laughs> <laughs> um well i think um what's interesting is i started to think i would only ever be compatible with another creative um because i think people who've got more structured routines and jobs do often think very differently um but what's interesting is um 
you know, my partner works in the sports industry and it's so different from what I do. Um, um, and, I, you know, on paper, I wouldn't have thought that would work. But she she is self-employed, even though she has quite a structured sort of um, routine and so on. Um, so I think there's something about um, the way you approach work that is quite telling. And I think she's quite self-starting and has that sort of sense of initiative and sort of doing things her own way and with her own kind of sensibility about how how she problem solves and stuff whereas i think people in in big organizations um have a very different structure to to the way they they approach work so i think it's sometimes it's maybe about it's not about what area you work in i think there's there's a lot of telling things about whether you might be self-employed and have a more flexible approach to work or whether you kind of like a very rigid nine-to-five kind of structure and, and being in a big corporation um i think those things are quite telling about who you might be compatible with and what your sort of mindset is yeah. and, and do you have any tips for you know people how do you date a writer essentially how do you <laughs> deal with the you know the ups and downs and uh, writing and the and the doubt and as then, well them thinking that everything's about themselves <laughs> it is. What? <laughs> well, I, yeah, but I think the thing is, my partner is is even though she's in a very different industry, she's quite emotional. What's really weird is, um, and I don't believe in any of this stuff at all about horoscopes or anything like that. But we actually share we share the same birthday. We're both on September the seventh, and kind of when we chatted about this on our, on like our second date. Um, we're chatting about our birthdays. So like, oh, mine's in September. She's like, oh, mine too. And I was like, yeah, the 7th. She's like, how did you know? And I was like, no, mine. What? Oh, what? <laughs> um, the but there, aligned for you There guys. is this kind of weird thing. And I don't know if I believe in that. But there's this kind of weird thing that somehow we have some similarities on our emotional makeup that, that really do work. And I think it's, it is it is just about um, your sort of compatibility and... Um, yeah, I think just just it was very clear early on there were things we were talking about about our approaches to life and friendships and love and family and parents and all of this kind of stuff where I think we were just on the same page. Um, so yeah, I think it's just about having really I think talking about a lot of stuff on your first on your kind of early dates and just you know like like proper stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like yeah. not just oh, what music. No, no. <laughs> well, I think you get to a certain age, don't you? And those sorts of things, you know, you kind of just do it naturally. You know, you just think, oh, I don't want to waste time just chatting about, you know, which movie you like. Oh, that's terrible date chat, though, isn't it? <laughs> God, if you're on a date and you're talking about your favourite movies, and probably on on the wrong date. <laughs> no, it's telling, though, isn't it? Like if they were to say something really shit, then you know you'd, you'd be like, all right, what, like Dumbo? Or... Oh, Dumbo's all right. Oh. I'm, not, I'm not just, you know, putting, that was the first movie that came into my head. Wouldn't be a deal breaker for me. Um, and we touched on it earlier a little bit about the difference between, you know, the, the long process of writing a book and the immediacy of of doing stand-up. Um, but this book resonates with so many people. I mean, I think you can probably gauge from me and Amy and just sit and talk to you all night about it. Um, have you had a lot of, I would imagine you've had a lot of feedback on things like social media from people who've read it you mentioned yeah. already having someone from who emailed you with that lovely lovely phrase how important do you think it is kind of for writers to be engaging with their readers and how do you manage your social media presence 
Oh, I think it's really, really important. I mean, I enjoy it. I, I particularly enjoy Twitter um, because, I, you know, it's short and pithy and it's good fun and it seems quite immediate. Um, uh, so, so yeah, I think I think it's really, really important. And yeah, my Twitter's definitely been followers have been growing since since the book came out. So yeah, it's been it's been really good. Um, and I yeah can't can't get enough of people getting in touch. That's and great. I've had relatively few people. I I thought I would get more people sort of going, oh, you can't question monogamy, you know, and sort of kind of be... Well, I, I did get one protest letter, although that was protest not a... Letter. Yeah, what, not letter? a... Someone like an actual letter, letter, an older gentleman. Um, oh, it's posted always the older gentleman. <laughs> yes, mm. yes, he um, posted a letter through the letterbox of Herne Hill Books when I was going to do my launch there and uh, wrote me a side of A4, which is, is brilliant because um, it's given me great comedy fodder and I often read it out at my gigs. What um, does he say? Well, he just sort of goes on about how he was monogamously married for many, many years and his children have all been happily monogamously married. And I'm thinking, how do you know how happy they are? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, interesting. How does that? Why would he think that you care? Like, I suppose he's just trying to say that you'll prove you wrong or like, is there, what's, what's the, what's the, I don't understand. But uh, it's, like it's just really interesting. I know. <laughs> it's just really interesting how with this concept of monogamy, even though my book title is a question, a lot of people kind of get it wrong. And they some people have said, oh, your book's called Monogamy is Dead, isn't it? I'm like, no, it's called Is Monogamy Dead? It's yeah. actually asking a question and it's an exploration. I'm not telling people what they should or shouldn't do. Um, I'm just saying maybe we should open our minds to, to having choices. Um, so it, it's really interesting how some people feel very challenged and threatened by the idea of monogamy being questioned and sort of want to jump to its protection, even though I'm not really attacking it. I actually think monogamy is lovely, um, but I think we need to interrogate what it even means because I think we communicate about it so terribly. Yeah. Well, that's it. And like one person's monogamy is not is, the is same it? for someone else. For, you know, for everyone else. Yes. And also, you know, there's the idea that you know, like, like that you write about where. You, why? How can one person give you everything that you need? Like, is that is that um, that's unrealistic? No, surely. Exactly. And it's like saying, well, you can have one friend for the rest of your yeah, life, it's or like... you can have one job, or you can live in one house. Yeah. But you have to choose when you're in your thirties so that you can also have a baby. <laughs> um, <laughs> or you know, obviously that's not the same for every single relationship. But it's that premise of like we don't have one of everything else in our lives in fact we're yeah. expected to move house we're expected to move job not so with the the mo- you know the person at the moment the, yeah. you know times are a changing well is we're not going to be dead I think well so I suppose that's probably why he's, he's responding to the question so I shouldn't have been so aggressive he's, he's why he's, he's written a letter answered. it's nice that he's interacting I suppose but, but I even on the, the even on the cover <laughs> well I think there are various videos um there's a video on my Facebook page actually of me uh, reading it out at uh, Polari Literary Salon at the Royal Festival Hall. Amazing. Is it, what, what, does anyone... what, in the main hall? What an amazing... Oh, no, it's in one of the rooms up oh, on yeah. level five. Does anyone um, get up and heckle? Is that... <laughs> I thought you were going to be like, yes, and then somebody threw it. Oh, what? And they like the guy but... who wrote the letter had sort of come along. Yeah. You're to... kidding. No, no, oh, no, no. <laughs> no, I mean, that would be amazing, we wouldn't it? Yeah, that could be yeah. <laughs> No, no, I think he rather sheepishly um, posted the letter sort of before the bookshop had opened, you know, and kind yeah. of... They were like, <laughs> I quite feel quite sorry for him now. Sitting at home, writing his letter, giving him something to do. So, uh, so you, you, <laughs> mentioned, you mentioned that. Um, so the this was all sort of around a show. Yeah. 
are you still you're not still performing that show obviously or no, is, but is, yeah tell us where we can see you I, I do perform uh, a lot particularly around London but, but around the country and even around the world occasionally um, so the project that is my sort of current one um, is kind of really following on from ideas in the book and, and very much following on from, from all this exploration of love and sex and relationships um, and I've just launched a new kind of multi-stranded project that is a blog, a podcast and a live event series called The Breakup Monologues um, which is myself um, interviewing um, mostly female comedy pals of mine about their breakup stories. Love this oh, idea I, so I'm much. already on board. <laughs> yeah. So um, if you check out breakupmonologues.wordpress.com, um, there's a blog there which has links to the podcast and and our live events and all of that. Yeah. Yes. Well, we well we do have. I, I could plug the one that's early next year. We've got an anti Valentine's um, breakup monologues on February the thirteenth at Poplar Union in East London, um, with Pippa Evans, Sarah Benito, Elf Lyons, and Paula Varjak. Very nice. We'll have to make a date in our Kansas for that one. That sounds great. That does sound amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That does sound amazing. Um, okay. Wonderful. So that's that, that's the best place that people can see see Rosie oh well I mean obviously that that is kind of the new thing that I'm promoting but um in general on social media Twitter at Rosie Wilby Facebook Rosie Wilby um and I've got um as well as my website rosiewilby.com I've got a, a kind of news blog where I I update gig dates and that kind of thing which is rosiewilbynews.blogspot.co.uk and Rosie Wilby will be joining us at the Riff Raff on Thursday, yes. December the 14th, mm-hmm. which is very exciting. I know, I'm looking forward to that. Um, you've, you're amongst very esteemed company. We've got a great lineup for that day, and it's going to be our Christmas party, essentially. So come with your tinsel and your, <laughs> and your mince pies. Don't you have to bring them? No, it's no, we'll, oh, okay. we will provide them. Are you providing mince pies? I think I'm going to bake mince pies, you know. <gasps> wow. I haven't told Amy this, but I think I'm going to bake. Good for you. Oh, I yeah. will support that wholeheartedly. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, so, mate. Thank appreciate you that. very much. You can make the mulled wine. I will, I will pour the mulled wine. <laughs> well, I won't, actually. I will point people in the direction Amy of will be drinking the mulled wine. <laughs> um, but thank you so much. We're so excited to hear you read from it. And yeah, thank you for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks for writing such a great Thank you. Thank you. The Riff Raff Podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. Come say hey at the-riffraff.com.